Welcome to the Bevy Podcast. I'm Hyatt Howard, your host. Here on the Bevy, we have fun and thoughtful conversations with friends. So pull a seat up to the table. Come chill with us. Today's episode, I chat with my friend Josh about education and student activism. Josh served as the University of Alabama's Director of Diversity and Inclusion, as well as a professor of law. Welcome to the Bevy Podcast, Josh. How you doing, man? Oh, man, I'm great, Hyatt. Thanks so much for having me. This is my first ever podcast episode, so I'm just really appreciative to be doing this with one of my closest friends, someone I've known since I was a very, very young kid in Marietta, Georgia. So, yeah. I'm happy to be breaking this ground for you, and I'm really glad that we got you first so that in all your subsequent podcasting, we will be just that tiny footnote that said Josh Porter appeared on the Bevy podcast first because we know you're destined to do great things, man. So one of the things that we always do on the Bevy podcast is ask people what their animal is. You're joining us today. What is this animal, sir? Ah, man, I would say an owl. And the reason I was saying owl is because I think for me, I'm really kind of introverted, really chill. I'm very much a people watcher type of person. So I just sit back and observe, think about things. And I wouldn't say I'm a night owl necessarily, but sometimes I think the pandemic has kind of created that in me. I didn't know. I've been a morning person my whole life until this pandemic. And now I'm like up all the time or just all hours of the night. So I'd say an owl just because of those particular characteristics. I could say, I could totally see that. And I would also <laughs> add because the owl is also appropriate because you're such a wise person. No, one of the most wise and thoughtful people that I've known. And I'm surprised to know that you are a morning person. At least when we're coming up, I remember spending countless hours playing Madden, the Mm -hmm. franchise mode, created player mode. Mm -hmm. We'd create these players. And if any of you have seen any given Sunday, I think our championship team included a player whose namesake was Willie Beeman, who plays, (laughs) <laughs> who was played by Jamie Foxx in that movie <laughs> with mm-hmm. Al Pacino as the head coach, mm-hmm. who's a star quarterback. And we'd have all these great storylines. I think, Josh, you were a wide receiver. I think I was at running, running back. back. You're running back. We had mm-hmm. one of our friends who was an offensive tackle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just yeah. Like so I wanted to ask, man, being on the ground at a university, particularly University of Alabama, who's renowned for their, their football program, what has it been like now that to see kind of the student activists, kids speaking out during the age of COVID-19, and now that you're this professor, so you're kind of part of the institution, is there any tension there? Oh, man, it's, it's really weird in a lot of ways. First, I have to, of course, go into my background. I went to Georgia for law school. I'm very much a Georgia fan, so working at Alabama generally, like, uh, and seeing, yes. one, they won the national championship this year. Georgia has not, has not won national championship in my lifetime. So it, it was really weird to be around that. It, it's, it's almost like fight club at my school in the sense of there are a couple of professors that either went to Georgia or from Georgia and we're Georgia fans, but we don't tell anybody we're Georgia fans. We don't talk about it because Alabama football is a religion out there. It's really, really odd. But in terms of, I think, activism and you see a lot of athletes speaking out and students speaking out, especially post George Floyd, I, I would say they're way braver than I am. I think a lot of this has is, is been heightened because of social media. I think about what activism looked like when I was a student. Uh, I graduated from Morehouse in 2010, right? Morehouse? <laughs> right, the house. And uh, we had a little bit of activism, but it was mostly sur- surrounding Obama's election in 2008. Mm-hmm. So being in college, being at HBCU during those times, it was really, really fascinating. There were folks 
including me, folks who are voting for the first time, engaging in the political process for the first time, really understanding all these intricacies of the political process and of social justice and all these issues just in general for the first time. And this was social media was around like Facebook was there. Twitter was kind of on the up and up, but it wasn't such an integral part of our lives. I don't know about you, Hi. I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 16. Mm. And now, I mean, kids are getting cell phones. They're being exposed to social media, just the entire outside world and all these things at very, very young ages. I think it's odd because I teach at a law school, so I'm dealing with young adults mostly, folks who already graduated undergrad, some of which had work experience already. So me being 33, I mean, I'm not that much older than they are. And some of us were the same age. So <laughs> ideologically, many times I agree. I just hope that they keep that energy when they get out into the workplace and they get out into these other corporations that aren't as, or, or that don't view, the, view them as integral to the culture, if that makes sense. So for instance, schools are, are willing to listen to young folks. They're willing to listen to students and they really want to change things. I feel in the professional world, that's less of a thing overall, but I think that can change. But yeah, I mean, you make a, a lot of good points here and just kind of going back first with this point about just you touched on is that when you were coming up, when I was coming up, there was this sense of we are coming into power. Whereas I think the younger people today, and maybe some of your students might feel this, they were kind of on the outskirts of power for for at least for the last four years. And I wonder if that's changed how they see political engagement and the value and utility around around it. So rather than, and I'm not saying this is true of all students, but rather than spend time kind of doing what I was doing with the NAACP in college was voter registration, we are seeing kind of more of this instantaneous, I'm going to use Twitter, I'm going to use Facebook to really whip up public opinion uh, to target specific, whether it's a professor or there's a company to leverage public pressure in that way. Are you seeing that that more from your students? Yeah, yeah, you, you touched on a lot. I mean, I would say the biggest, I would say the biggest benefit that young people have in terms of wanting to advance their causes is social media, especially in this day and age. But I also say that's the biggest disadvantage as well. A bigger advantage because you can find people that that believe what you believe, think what you think, that are willing to mobilize and really further whatever causes that you have. I mean, I think it really has open access to so many people and so many walks of life. And it it can create these senses of community, but the disadvantage is you're also, it's just a lot of different things. I think it creates an echo chamber in a little, in a, in a ways as well, in the sense of you really, there are whole sites or whole modes of social media that are focused on just your viewpoint. And you may not ever acknowledge or even spend time with anyone else from another viewpoint. I mean, what was that social media platform about Parler? Yes. Yeah. So between Parler and Facebook, I mean, there are studies on this. Essentially, the Capitol riot started because of those two sites. I mean, just from Mm -hmm. what people were saying, people believing falsely that the election was stolen and all this foolishness, right? So I think that shows the ugly side of social media. But I think the good side of it is, you know, things like Black Lives Matter, for instance, they wouldn't have been a thing if it weren't for social media. That's just a fact. I, I say all of this to emphasize that things are just so different for us. I mean, it... Going back to the whole professor thing, it's kind of weird to think about, you know, 
given my age, I think I'm still relatively young. And you know, I, I so, do too. <laughs> I always right, say right. that I'm in that group too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I feel so old talking to them sometimes because their their entire, I guess, the way they view the world, the way they view activism, and the way they view just society is very, very different than mine. I mean, I was in high school during the Bush years, George W. I mean, and whether you agreed or disagreed, it was a very you know contentious time to be <laughs> to be in right. high school and to be learning some of these ideas. Or for them, they're coming up, their eight years was during the Obama presidency where things were more liberal. There were more, I think there was this notice of other causes that I just frankly wasn't aware of. Um, you know, so I think as society overall is becoming more informed on a lot of topics, but there's also a risk of misinformation as well. I was curious about that point you were making around the echo chamber, because I remember being in a law school classroom not too long ago. And sometimes you do feel that there is a certain ideological viewpoint that is being promoted in the classroom and others that are kind of just being tiptoed around. I'm as a professor, how do you kind of strike that balance to ensure that your students feel empowered in a respectful way? To voice their opinions? I try to engage students in a lot of different ways. First, I hardly ever say what I believe on this particular topic. Like I teach education law. So we talk about school to prison pipeline. We talk about immigrants' rights in, in, in schools, including things whether undocumented students should go to public schools, hmm. uh, which is a very contentious topic. There's this idea folks believe they're taking away resources for folks who are actually U, actual U.S. citizens. But then there's other policy ideals, things that are guaranteeing the Constitution, equal protection under the laws, all of these things. So I try my best to kind of strike that balance just by not offering my opinion and by just introducing articles and ideas that represent more than one viewpoint. But I think that there's this idea of cancel culture and students as well, they don't want to be canceled. They don't want to say things that are on their mind. And to a weird extent, I kind of understand that. I think about I don't know if you've been reading the news recently about this whole idea of critical race theory. And yes. there are politicians in very in a lot of different states that are telling Republicans, telling their boards of education, we don't want critical race theory discussed in schools because they believe that critical race theory ostracizes a certain viewpoint or ostracizes certain students or people who believe a certain thing, which is very opposite from my experience in law school. I mean, in 2014 or whatever I was in law school, I graduated 2014. But saying things related to critical race theory probably wasn't very popular in my law school courses, where I feel now is something where if your professor isn't talking about these things, then you're going to have some very upset students. Really? And yeah, it's, it's all about trying to strike that balance in a lot of ways, because. And, and one thing about it, too, is that I think a lot of members of faculty, not just at Alabama, but just in general, in general, I think they want to talk about these things in ways that are meaningful and serving their students and things of that nature. But if you say the wrong thing, you can lose your job. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of it is within our prevailing environment, within our academic institutions, not only are students kind of being, I would say, more sensitive to the fact that their comments may be used or interpreted in a manner that could lead them to be quote unquote canceled, but professors too. So like, it's an interesting dynamic there to navigate, particularly when you are thinking about these larger issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. It sounds quite frankly, a very tight 
rope to walk? How do you do it? How do I do it? So for me, at least, especially this semester, I think the biggest thing was everyone was agreeing with each other, which was okay, but I would have liked some differing opinions in there. And I think, and I think about that, the future of academia in general is if you're not of the accepted mainstream viewpoint, how does that shape classroom discussion going forward? And don't get me wrong. There are some viewpoints that don't need to be expressed in the classroom. I'm right there. Let me be very clear on that. But I think there are some policy points or some positions or places where it may be a little right leaning or it may be more moderate than, you know, what's accepted generally. But I kind of want to make room for those discussions too, and make room for folks to kind of share those opinions. For instance, one policy point is what should a federal government's role be in ensuring all students have a meaningful education. Mm-hmm. And there, there are those who believe that because the way the constitution is written now, there's no right to education, which is crazy in my, my opinion, that there's no implicit or explicit right to education. But there's some some folks of different viewpoints that believe that you know, we don't want the federal government telling us how we should educate our kids. And I think there's some validity to those arguments. I don't necessarily agree, but I don't think that there's a horrible arguments either. But right. You're not going to hear that that opinion in class, basically. Education is not a fundamental right in our constitution. Could you talk a little bit more about the absence of, of the right? Sure. I would say, of course, Brown v. Board of Education is the most consequential education-related court case in general, right? And probably one of the most consequential legal precedent that exists just broadly, and it just has to be an education case. But I'll say the second one is uh, San Antonio v. Rodriguez in 1972, which was based on, to make a long story short, there was a black neighborhood in San Antonio and a white neighborhood in San Antonio. The white neighborhood in San Antonio was way more affluent. The black neighborhood in San Antonio was not as affluent. And San Antonio had this scheme where basically their, their education system was funded on property tax, which is still a case now. So you live in a more affluent neighborhood. Obviously, more property taxes are being generated. So it's a better school. It's a better, well-resourced school. They're attracting better teachers. They have all the nice stuff as opposed to other to, to the school up the way. Keep in mind, these schools are right, right next to each other, darn hmm. near, right up the street. And some civil rights organizations took, took, took the schools, took San Antonio to court and basically said that this is discriminatory. This is unconstitutional, all these things. The court came back and said, well, there's no right to education in the, in in the constitution. So it's not constitutional because you're not guaranteed. There's no explicit right to education. Wow. And there's also no implicit rights. Not even something you could assume is a right based on the US Constitution. And they also made it a point to mention that 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 states and school districts and localities know best on in terms of how to educate their children. So they should be the ones making the educational the educational decision decisions, not the federal government. And as a result of that, I mean, that's where local control comes from. That's why their one school district could be a really good school district and the one right next door, right up the street can be terrible. That's the reason why the achievement gap is what it is, because there's no right to education. And you were an educator, right? You were firsthand witnessed what was happening on, on the grounds in these in these schools. And I wonder how that experience informs your reading of the law when you see the justices kind of say, well, this just is what it is. Localities will figure it out. It's all good. How does that 
experience as an educator change how you interact with education law? Oh, yeah. So I briefly taught ninth grade literature at Miami Jackson Senior High School in Miami, Florida, Little Haiti neighborhood off 17th and 36th. I didn't have a single white kid. There wasn't a single one in the entire school. It was a thousand, twelve hundred students. Wasn't a single one. And the kids I had were largely poor, frankly. I mean, they were kids that many of them were first generation Americans, many of which the parents have been in and out of prison, some of which their parents were, you know, strung out or whatever. They were the heads of households at like 15, 16 years old. Mm. I had and I taught ninth grade, so my age group was around 14 to 15, maybe 16 here and there. In my class, I had maybe six pregnant girls. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't have a sex ed program. We had one guidance counselor for the entire school, one social worker. (laughs) Right. But contrast that with the Miami Beach Senior High School, which is on South Beach, gorgeous campus, literally 15 minutes up the street. 15 minutes. It's one of the best high schools in the nation, or at least at the time, it's one of the best high schools you you will ever come across. And they're in the same school district. And I think that that experience really informed or really just encouraged me to get into education law, generally get that civil rights law, because it made me think, I was thinking about my students. I think about my students all the time. I don't know what they're up to now. I mean, they're grown, Mm -hmm. but I always wonder what would their lives have been if they grew up 15 minutes south of where they they grew up. Right. It's just as the road over, the block over even. Right. Right. Exactly. I'm curious, at the end of your time as a teacher, you you said you already knew you were going to law school, but did you think about staying at all? Did you think about doubling down? (laughs) When I was teaching, I was on food stamps. So the answer is no. The the money, it just wasn't something that was sustainable for me at that level in my life, my career. So law school was an easy choice. And it was something I always wanted to do in general. And who knows, maybe one day I'll teach or something, but it was, it was tough where I taught at, and it was, it was a very difficult environment. I, prior to this job, that's probably the hardest I've worked in any job, was would get there at 6 a.m. every morning, get there at 6 a.m., and not leave until maybe 6, 6.30 p.m. Wow. Yeah. And you had to make the decision between subsistence poverty and being there, there for students. I mean, is that a choice you think was not just unique? to you, but some of your other co-workers? Oh, it was, it was, it wasn't just unique to me. I mean, there were a couple of my co-workers that were trying to go to law school or grad school or med school, whatever. And many of them ended up doing that. A lot of them are doing great work now, reaching back and, and touching those communities, but it's a tough existence, man. And, and this is one of those things where I'm glad I did it, but I think the burnout rate is so high in those roles that it's very hard to just keep that thing going. And I mean, I'm sure your teaching experience now at the University of Alabama, even with all the caveats that we discussed earlier, is exponentially different in terms of just the resources you have have available to you, the type of students yeah. that are coming coming through the through the classroom door. And as we round out our discussion today, if you were now that you've been at the higher ed level, you've been at the local level. If you were to make kind of any changes to the education system, what would you do uh, and why? Pay teachers what they're worth. That would be the biggest thing. I think that keeps people motivated to do this work. I think that attracts more highly educated folks uh, and that keeps us there. 
because ultimately they're the ones that they're on the front lines doing this stuff. Well, that wraps us up today for the Bevy podcast. A special thank you to Josh for coming out and sharing his story. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and share it with a friend. Until next time, peace.